I'd like to uh, begin the talk uh, about the map of the journey to awakening by telling a story. <clears throat> I started meditation practice accidentally, as if there was ever such a thing was possible, uh, back in 75, when the Western students who had practiced in Asia returned to America and started teaching in 1974. I went to the first retreat in 75. And at that time, mindfulness was not a word in anybody's daily use. Uh, it was just a new and an unknown thing. But now mindfulness has become uh, kind of a quite, quite well-known phenomenon. It's even on the cover of Time magazine. So things have changed in the last 40 years a lot, uh, in part because uh, of the teachings that were started uh, 40 years ago and the, uh, the power and the effectiveness of this practice called mindfulness for uh, affecting... Uh, dramatic, even if gradual, uh, change in one's life. So I'm happy to give the talks uh, and happy to speak about uh, this path of awakening because it's what we, we've all been doing for as long as you've heard of mindfulness and uh, have been trying to practice mindfulness for whatever reason or however, whatever technique you've used. But I'll tell a little story. After I'd been practicing for about eight years doing retreats, uh, week-long retreats, nine-day retreats, uh, even, even a three-month retreat uh, in that period of time, uh, I was practicing with a Burmese monk who came to America, Sayadaw Upandita. And Sayadaw Upandita was a successor to uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, the book that uh, recently came out. So I was practicing with uh, Sairo Pandita and I was struggling. I was doing everything I was supposed to do and I was, you know, paying very close attention, but I was, uh, I was a slow learner. I was a really slow learner. So I was, I was struggling and having a very difficult time and it was at some point during the retreat, uh, I don't know, Sairo must have asked me a question or something and I said, well, it was something like, well, what do you think you're doing here? I mean. And I said, well, you know, I thought that you just, you know, you learned how to pay attention to the breath, you know, the rising, falling, the abdomen, and you're, you're mindful, and then, poof, someday you get enlightened. And when I said that, he just burst out laughing. Because that's, that is kind of how it happens. If you practice mindfulness successfully, then, poof, someday you will awaken to the truth and suffer less. Let's put it that way. But I didn't know that there was this path. I didn't know that there was a map. Not a map that you could follow like the, most maps, but the, the journey of awakening is a very well-known journey. People from the time of the Buddha onwards have been uh, making this journey from the delusion and the confusion and the suffering of our lives to some degree of a mindfulness uh, and awakening and uh, some degree of suffering less. Now, just so you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about suffering, I'm not talking about what you read in the newspaper. I'm talking about your own heart, your own mind, 
You know, when you feel lonely, anxious, fearful, depressed, confused, bewildered, irritated, impatient, frustrated, disappointed, wanting what you can't get, having to put up with what you don't want, that's suffering. That's what I'm talking about. Is there anybody here that doesn't suffer? If you don't suffer, you're done. You can, you got the weekend off. <laughs> so that's what I'm talking about, suffering. We all suffer. And this path of awakening is a path as, as unlikely as it seems. I mean, who could ever imagine? Really, can you imagine being free of impatience? Being free of irritation? Being free of anxiety? I mean, it doesn't even seem realistic, does it? It isn't if you don't practice. But actually, it is possible. It is possible. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's like, is he pulling my leg? What's he talking about? I don't know if that's real or not. And don't ask me, because, hey, I'm not done the path. I'm not finished yet. I'm, I'm on the way, but... Uh, and what I, can, what I can attest to is that if you practice you'll come to know your suffering in intimate detail. You'll definitely come to know it better, and you'll begin to understand why you suffer. And when you understand why you suffer, then you can begin, address, begin to address the causes and the conditions that give rise to that suffering, and therefore you'll suffer less. Okay? Okay, so on this journey, there's this... Uh, confused state that we all find ourselves in at some point as a human being just kind of muddling through life trying to do the best we can and we realize that you know it's, it's hard it's, it's, it causes us a lot of stress it's uh, uh, you know suffering but actually if you look at the whole journey of all beings uh, on this path of awakening all of us just being born human beings we've done 90% of the trip because as a human being, just look, our lives are pretty good, right? Our lives are pretty good. We're not suffering like animals. You know, living in the West, we're not suffering like a lot of people in other parts of the world that, you know, live with conditions that are much more challenging, right? So we're being born a human being, we live in the West, we're all educated. You can all understand what I'm talking about. And none of us are starving. We all have food. We have uh, good health, good enough health to be here. We have some discretionary time. We have some discretionary income. We're interested. And still, we suffer. Right? Okay. So, what is it that causes someone like all of you to be interested in this very refined kind of work? of to suffer less. I mean, a lot of people would just love to have the conditions in life that we have and just say, hey, that's good enough. I'm well fed, I got a job, I'm warm in the winter, I'm cool in the summer, and I'm educated. And even the Buddha acknowledged these are real blessings in our life. These are real causes of happiness. To have an education, to be able to take care of your, yourself, your kids, your parents. Uh, to be able to run a household. The Buddha identified these as to live in a place where there's no war. It's really good. 
But still, we suffer. Okay. So what is it that causes us to um, be interested in even less suffering? What causes us to be interested is what are called the paramis. The paramis are the forces of purity in our heart. They're the qualities of good human beings all over the world. Every culture, every society. And these qualities are not particularly Buddhist. They're qualities like generosity, loving kindness, patience, uh, non-reactivity or equanimity, effortful, being effortful, being resolute, um, living ethically, telling the truth. Everywhere, in every culture, people who tell the truth, practice generosity, loving kindness, are less reactive and are wise. They're valued, they're recognized as good human beings. And it's because of those qualities in our own heart that mostly we were aware of and we have developed to some degree. But we see that there's still room for improvement. You know, is there ever a day go by when you don't have the opportunity to practice patience? Or practice uh, non-reactivity, being a little more balanced. Yeah, we always have opportunities. We don't always take the opportunity, though, do we? So we choose to suffer with impatience, with reactivity, with not quite telling the truth. Eh, you know, just kind of. So we see that while we do have a lot of good qualities, there's room for improvement. A part of them. The part of the map that I'm going to talk about uh, tonight is that little bit of improvement that still remains. So, you know, when you see an iceberg, you know, in the water, it's said that you can only see the top 10%. And so you know there's 90% of it is invisible. Well, the work that we've done in our lives up till now, to get to the point where we're interested in this map now of awakening, We've done 90%. What I'm going to talk about tonight is the last 10%. Okay? Just to put it in context, we all have a lot of development of the paramis, but we know there's room for improvement. That's what we're doing here. That's what I'm going to talk about. So, here's the map. There's this little thing called progress of insight, or the progress of Vipassana knowledge is through the stages of purification. Now let me just say also, that this is a well-known map, it's been around for a couple of thousand years, but Western teachers, the first generations of Western teachers, they knew about this map, but they chose not to share it. They taught from it, they knew it, uh, but they chose not to uh, share it in quite this way, partly because we are very ambitious, generally. We Westerners, we're very ambitious, we're very determined. We strive and scheme and strategize to get what we want as quick as possible. And on this path of awakening, all that is a hindrance. It's an obstacle. So they said, better that we don't share this. It'd be better just for people to just kind of come into this meditation thinking all they've got to do is sit quietly with their eyes closed and breathe deep. Yeah, if they do that, they won't try too hard. Right? How do you have to, you don't have to try hard to breathe. Right? 
So really the, the information was not shared so widely. It was known and it was available, but uh, not so much. A lot of you can practice for years. Practice mindfulness, doing retreats, doing retreats here, and never learn that there's a path or that there's a progression of knowledge that you'll learn to, to, uh, as you move towards awakening. But because there are so many people now jumping on the mindfulness bandwagon and uh, uh, sharing it in whatever way they feel is useful for them, uh, that there's, there's grown some confusion. There's grown some confusion and there's some lack of understanding, really, of the value of, of mindfulness. So I just want to read this uh, one uh, note that um, Joseph Goldstein, he was one of my first teachers, he was one of the senior most teachers of mindfulness and Vipassana, uh, or insight meditation in, the, in, the, in America, in the West. Uh, he wrote, he was kind enough to write a foreword to this book, the, the Manual of Insight. He says, The widespread introduction of mindfulness now taking place in America and other Western countries has its roots largely in the teachings of Mahasi Sayadaw and his great ability to convey the practical means of awakening. Although mindfulness in its secular applications, like mindfulness-based stress reduction, for example, although mindfulness in its secular applications has tremendous benefits, it's helpful to remember that the original teachings of the Buddha are about liberation. That is, freeing the mind from those mental states that cause suffering to oneself and others. Many of us have lost sight of the fact that this mindfulness that we practice is not just for feeling good, not just for calming down, not just for stress management. It's for freeing the mind, freeing your heart from suffering and the causes of suffering. Okay. So, this uh, map that we're going to... I'm just going to do a quick overview tonight because obviously I could talk about this for a couple of days straight, right? And it takes several years to, to practice it. But I'm just going to give you an overview to tempt you to come back tomorrow and Saturday. Or if you can't possibly make it tomorrow and Saturday, the book is available. I'm not selling these books. They're for sale. But um, they'll be available if you want, if you want to buy them. So when we look at this... Uh, Progress of insight here. Some people don't like to call it progress. Some like to call it the process of insight, which is also a good way of understanding it. It's the process of developing insightful knowledge. <clears throat> now, first I have to say that when we suffer, there's three grades of suffering. There's, you know, I talked about suffering. There's three grades. There's the kind of suffering that you act out. You're so impatient, you're so angry, you're so anxious, or you're so afraid that you acted out causing yourself and other people harm. You hurt other people. You hurt yourself and you hurt other people because you say it, you do it. That's the grossest form. But sometimes we can exercise restraint. And we don't say it and we don't act it out. But we're obsessed. The mind is just obsessed with thoughts of revenge and thoughts of acting out in a way that would cause harm if we act out. The Buddha gave one practice for exercising restraint of the 
of the suffering that causes harm. He gave a second practice for exercising uh, some training of the mind so that you don't obsess so much, that level of suffering. But there's a third level of suffering that the Buddha spoke about, and that is the potential within our own mind to react in an unskillful way. We always have the potential to be impatient, to be impulsively angry, to be impulsively fearful, to be impulsively whatever. And we know that. We know that in our own minds. We know that in our own hearts, don't we? We know that we're not free of that. You know, if, if push come to shove and the conditions were right, we would, we would act unskillfully. There's a third training that the Buddha offered to address that impulsivity, not yet arisen, not yet happening, but the potential for it to arise. And these three trainings, the exercise of restraint, the exercise of tranquility, and the exercise of understanding, are the three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is the Buddha's path for the journey of awakening. So this first, um, this first line on this, this process of insight is called purification of conduct. This is the practicing of the precepts. This is the first training that the Buddha, the Buddha gave. And the precepts are to exercise restraint from speaking and acting in a way that causes harm. Not lying, not stealing, not acting out uh, sexually in a way that causes harm to yourself or others, not, not abusing or overusing the use of intoxicants, uh, and speaking the truth and speaking in other ways that conduces to harmony in your relationships. And even that, even those, this is the, this is, this is the most, most basic level of being human, not hurting other people. You know, by killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, use of intoxicants, and speaking harmfully. Even that is rampant in the world today. If you read the news, that's what it is. A catalog of people acting out, hurting one another. That's the news, right? And so, people suffer. But that's the first practice that we each have to undertake, is this exercise of restraint. Begin to really pay mindful attention to when we speak and act, that it's coming from a place of non-harming. And even that's not easy, right? Not easy for me. I don't think it's easy for you either. Yeah, we still do and say things. We'd rather not. But we have regret. Uh, when, we, when you act out in this way, then we feel remorse. We, have re we feel guilty. We have, have regret. And that's another level of suffering, right? I'm not the only one, right? Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure I'm not... Okay. But anyway, if, if we can practice this level of purifying our conduct, what we're doing, what we're, when we say purifying our conduct, we're noticing in our mind when there is an impulse to speak or act in a way that might cause harm. But we have to be mindful, right? We have to be aware. Mindfulness is to remember to recognize the present moment's experience. We have to remember to be aware of what's going on in our mind when we're about to speak or about to act. Ooh, that takes quite a lot of training just to purify our mind from acting out carelessly. But that's where we begin. That's where we begin. And you can see that the world as a whole needs this practice a lot. Right?
the second uh, line calls, says uh, purification of mind. This is temporarily overcoming the hindrances. Well, when the mind is obsessed, when we're, when we're thinking about our anger and we're thinking about our impatience and we're thinking about what we'd like to say and what we'd like to do, but we're not actually, actually saying it or doing it, but we're obsessing uh, with fear or anxiety or depression, you know, you know what it's like. The mind just gets caught in this rut and it goes over and over and over again. And it knows the story of this anger and this fear and this jealousy. And it just goes over and over and over. And the mind is just obsessed. The suffering. The second training of the Noble Eightfold Path is to be mindful of the present moment's experience. And what does that mean? What it means... You know, we usually start with paying attention to the breath at the nostrils or the belly, and we try to calm down a little bit. If we can, if we can sustain the continuity of being aware, being aware, being aware, being aware, moment after moment after moment after moment, then these obsessions don't get any momentum in the mind. Now, they might arise. You know, even as you're trying to practice mindfulness, somebody comes in and slams the door. And you're just sitting there minding your own business, and they slam the door, and your, and your, your mind goes... Who did that? Ah, okay. But instead of obsessing about it and turning around and looking and giving them the evil stink eye, you know, you see it. You see in your own mind, oh, here comes this anger. And if you can be mindfully aware of that moment, being mindful of an unskillful state of mind is a wholesome state of mind. Anger is unwholesome. It's unskillful. It causes you harm. It'll cause other people harm if you act it out. But if you're aware of it, you're not going to act it out. It may be unpleasant to be aware of, but you're not obsessing angrily. You're aware that anger has arisen in your own heart. Or you're aware that fear has arisen in your own heart, or anxiety, whatever it is. That awareness is wholesome. That's present. That will, is, if you can sustain that awareness, awareness of anger, awareness of impatience, awareness, 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 then it'll calm down. This is how we train the mind to not obsess. It's a training. You can't control a mind, can you? You know, you can't tell the mind, mind, be happy. <laughs> you can tell it, but it's got a mind of its own, right? You know, as Sayadaw Utejaniya, one of the, my teachers in Burma, says, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Meaning, what comes into the mind, you, you, you never know. You never know. You, you just don't know. Somebody walks in and does something and you'll get angry. you get impatient. Or you get caught in desire or fear. You don't know. It's just going to happen. But once it happens, ah, you're responsible. Now you've got to do something about it. You're either going to act it out, you're going to train your mind to calm down, or you're going to understand Oh, this is the third training, is how to understand this situation where you don't get caught in suffering. Okay, so this mindfulness, purification of mind, is when we are able to just be mindfully aware for sustained periods of time, at least for two or three seconds in a row. It's hard. You know, we did the sitting, and we're paying attention to the present, remembering to recognize the present moment. 
How, 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 how many seconds could you be aware before the mind got lost in thought? Five seconds? Two breaths? Three breaths, maybe? Then, you know, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, spacing out. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it goes, isn't it? It's like, it's really hard. I mean, and, and nobody's even threatening us. But still, hard to be, <laughs> hard to be aware. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about. Establishing some degree of continuity to the mindfulness so that we, we're not caught in spacing out or obsessing. Then when we do that, we begin to purify our view. This is the third, third uh, step here. And it's called knowledge of discerning mental and physical phenomena. What that means is we actually understand what is being observed. We observe and we can actually understand Oh, breathing in is being known. Okay, I'm using my hands now to, to, to teach, three-dimensional teaching. Do, do, do. Breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. Hearing sound is being known. Thinking is being known. Planning is being known. Remembering is being known. Boy, if you could be that continuous, cool, chilled right out. Really, you wouldn't be caught in reactivity, would you? But it's when that knowledge of something being known is continuous. You know, for three, four, five, ten, fifteen seconds, wow, then you can really feel the whole mind and body just settle down. Ten, fifteen seconds. Seconds. I'm not talking about minutes. I'm talking about seconds. That's how hard it is. Okay, so when we begin to clarify our... this, this uh, this knowledge discerning mental and physical phenomena, it's when we, we really uh, have some continuity. We can begin to recognize the whole package, all different kinds of sensations in the body, all different kinds of thoughts in the mind, all kinds of emotional reactivity, where we're not just caught up in it. We don't just get caught up in my anger, my fear, my memories, my plans. We see, oh, remembering is being known. Planning is being known. Fear is being known. Not my fear. I'm afraid. That's not being mindful. That's being entangled. That's being obsessed. Okay, so that's quite a... Actually, it's quite hard. It's quite hard to be continuously aware that something is being known. Something is being known. And to recognize this knowing, this awareness. Quite difficult to get established in that, in this awareness. And partly because we have been... Uh, the mind has been wandering around in all kinds of thoughts and plans and memories and self-indulgence for, well, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine decades. Not nine. There's nobody here with nine decades, but a, lot, a long time. So the mind has these habits of just indulging in what it wants to. And so once we start watching it and saying, wait, I'm not going to let it indulge. I'm going to notice what's going on. Ooh, the mind doesn't like that. The actual experience of this stage of practice is extreme agitation, extreme restlessness, and extreme physical pain, discomfort. I should say physical discomfort. You really have to learn to tolerate a tremendous amount of discomfort in the body. Tremendous. I'm not kidding either. To really sit still and to watch your mind, not just to act it out, moving around and looking. Just sit there with it. Okay, you still with me? Okay, we're moving on to purification of overcoming doubt. 
This is where we begin to, number two, it's the knowledge of discerning conditionality. Now what this means is everything that occurs, everything that arises to be known, arises due to causes and conditions. Everything. It doesn't happen out of the blue. It happens because certain causes and conditions come into being and you can recognize them. Now you can begin to see Oh, the causes and conditions that come together to give rise to this experience. The way that we teach you as students to, to pay attention now is when you sit, when you move, we ask you to notice all your intentions. Okay, for the rest of the talk tonight, I want you to notice every intention before you swallow, before you blink, or before you move the body in any way. Just notice that intention, okay? So before you nod your head, just know you have the intention to nod your head. Nod, intending, nodding, okay? Intending, blinking. Intending, swallowing. Intending, turning. Intending, smiling. Intending, frowning. Can you do that? Yeah. Did you notice the intention before you just made that little gesture? No. <laughs> That's what's required. Yeah? Oh, it means really slowing down the, the function, the process of the mind, extremely slow to where you're just noticing everything so that you notice every little impulse in the mind to turn your head, to swallow, to adjust your posture, move your feet like that. Every little... Okay, you still with me? If you can, if you can, slow the, if you can speed up the noticing or slow down the activity, the behavior, you'll begin to see all of these intentions. The body does not move without there being an intention. And not just one intention, there's a whole stream of intentions. For me to move my hand from the left side of me to the right side of me takes hundreds of intentions, hundreds of movements. Intending, moving, intending. There's a steady stream of intending and movement. As soon as I stop having that intention, the hand stops. And it will stay right there until I have the intention to let it down. You see how continuous the mind would have to be? When you're that continuous, there's no wandering mind, right? Where's the mind going to wander? It's not going to wander. Wherever it wanders, you're going to notice it. Okay. It's a good thing this is the hardest part of the trip, huh? Because it's, it's, it's pretty hard. <laughs> okay, so now we've, we've, we're into overcoming doubt. We're seeing conditionality. Oh, here it is. Here it says, the meditator appears grim, gloomy, dull, furious, and weary. <laughs> I thought we were meditating to kind of get calm and light and open and loving and spacious and kind of peace and love, right? There's some terrain to cover before we get there. But when we're aware of our intentions, uh, then we'll be... Uh, oh, gee. At this point, the meditator will encounter considerable amounts of unbearable discomfort in the body. Stiffness, heat, pain, tingling, aching, itching, spasms, heaviness, a lot of itchiness. <sighs> and as soon as you notice the itchiness in one place, it moves to another place. <laughs> and the heat gets so hot, you, can't, you, can't, you feel it all over the body. And when you look at it anywhere, it moves to another place. And it, it tends to... As soon as you see it at one place, it disappears and it moves someplace else. At this point, 
there's no satisfaction in your practice. This is why, this is why Mahasi Sayadaw says, you can read the book, but you better get a teacher too. Because if you have a teacher who's been through this, they'll know how to guide you through it. If you're just practicing from the book and you run into stuff like this, you're going to say, this can't be right. This can't be right. I thought it was all about, you know. I mean, at, frankly, when I started practicing meditation, I thought it was something about kind of sitting down and getting, getting into a space that's something like drugs, you know, something like a stoned, calm, light, high feeling. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, I'm meditating good. No, that's, that's not what it's like. <laughs> That's not what it's like at all. <laughs> so, now let me just remind you that I haven't said much about the three characteristics, which are dukkha, anicca, and anatta. Or I've talked about pain in the body. Huh? That's dukkha. But I haven't talked about the insights into uh, impermanence and the insight into conditionality much. But this is what vipassana means. Vipassana means to see the characteristics of impermanence, to s- that whatever we experience, whatever arises and is known, disappears. Yeah, everything. It's just momentary. It's gone. Arises, gone. Arises, gone. Eventually we begin to see that. Whatever we're observing, the breath, breathing in, disappears. Breathing out, disappears. Itching, disappears. Heat, disappears. Everything disappears. So... When we, when we start to see this in our experience, I don't mean breathing in is something. I mean that there's, uh, there's something that disappears. Of course, we know we breathe in and we breathe out, we breathe in and we breathe out. But whatever we're feeling, we want to see at the time it actually occurs. This itching, right? Oh, pain. You know when pain arises in the body? Anybody doesn't ever have any pain in the body? Okay. So when you have pain in, pain in the body and you put your attention on it, what happens to it? It gets worse, <laughs> or it moves, yeah? or it changes, yeah? or sometimes it disappears. Something happens to it. Vipassana is learning how to observe experience so that you begin to see these three characteristics. You begin to see how they change, how impermanent they are. We begin to see how, unple- how unpleasant they are. Either they're painful or they're unstable. So, you know. If you have a good, if you have some, you sit down and out of just pure sheer luck, you have a good sitting, a part of a good sitting. You know, for the first 10 minutes of the sitting, it's like, wow, the body's comfortable, the mind is clear. We say, wow, this is it. Finally, I got it. For about 10 minutes or three minutes. And then it changes. So we begin to see that things are impermanent. We see that things are not satisfying because they're not stable and they arise due to causes and conditions mostly out of our control. Once we start seeing this, the mind is really upset. The mind really gets upset. Because we live our life trying to be, trying to stable, trying to have things stabilized, trying to have things satisfying, trying to have things stable in our life and predictable and something you can rely on. And we always like to think that we're in control. And what we're finding out through practice at this point is you're not in control, things aren't stable, and they're not very satisfying. So when you see this over and over and over again, throughout all your sitting, you get you have a lot of reaction. You get upset, you get afraid, you get fearful, you get 
judgmental. You criticize yourself. You certainly blame the teacher a lot. I mean, this, you know, this is natural. This is what happens. But this is the knowledge that we have to gain. I can see that I'm going to have to kind of speed up or shrink the, shrink the, shrink the, shrink the journey. But let me just say that much of the next, uh, the rest of the journey is refining our understanding of these three characteristics. Okay? So I'm going to just point to number three, the Vipassana knowledge of comprehension. This is where we begin to recognize these three characteristics, and it's called the rolling up the mat, the first of the three rolling up the mat stage, meaning it is so painful and it's so frustrating and it's so unsatisfactory and it's so intolerable. You just want to roll up the mat and go home and say, to heck with it, I'm not going to do this. And everybody feels this at this stage. Everybody. And if you don't have a teacher that says, wait, 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 sit there, just kind of bear with it, just see if you can be with it, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you'll go home, you will, you'll go home. So you need a teacher to do this. But if you can stabilize a little bit with that level of discomfort and that level of insecurity and that level of things being out of control, so to speak, stabilize and just keep noticing all of that and all your reactions to it, you get to this place called uh, uh, Sudonibbana. Sudonibbana. It's where all the spiritual goodies start to arise. And you have some periods of great tranquility. You have some place of just effortless energy. You have some place of just bursting faith. You just have so much confidence and so much faith in the Buddha and the teachers and yourself. And you just feel so in love with the Dharma. And you start to feel rapture. Or you start to have goosebumps and you just feel excited and you feel joyful and you get ecstatic and you just have uh, thrills and chills in the body and the mind that's just like unbelievable super pleasant super pleasant and then there's there's this calm uh, this uh, sukha happy comfort of mind and body where the body is just suffused with the most pleasant feelings you've ever felt in your life Really, I'm not kidding. These spiritual goodies, they will come. They're natural. They occur at a certain stage in the path. A lot of, a lot of uh, religious or spiritual traditions have these experiences as their goal. Ecstasy, union with one or union with all, uh, bliss. Some of these are, are considered you know, the goal of, of some spiritual practices. But in this in this journey of awakening, their scenic turnouts on the route only. You know, when you're on a trip, and you're going from here to there. Sometimes they have these little scenic turnouts and you kind of pull off to the side of the road and you take a look and say, oh, that's so pleasant, that's so nice. It's a wonderful sunset, nice mountains. Yes, yes, this is wonderful. This is going to be a great place to live for another five minutes. And then after 15 minutes, boring, right? It's just like, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen that mountain. I've seen that lake. I've seen that sunset. So what? That's what happens with the bliss, ecstasy, happiness, joy, comfort, lightness of mind. Been there, done that. What's so hot about that? And when you finally get kind of fed up with that, all those spiritual goodies, then you're ready to move on. But it's not easy to let go of bliss. It's not easy to let go of ecstasy. It's not easy to let go of this extreme pleasantness in the body and the mind, right? Right? 
It's very difficult. Because, and here I have to point, I just, I just reviewed the number four. You know, all those uh, lights, rapture, tranquility, resolve, effortless energy, happiness, piercing insight, knowledge, equanimity, delight. I just kind of reviewed those. But when you can actually treat those as just another object being known. You know, breathing in, being known. Breathing out, being known. Itching, being known. Heat, being known. Bliss, being known. Ecstasy, being known. Delight, being known. Unbelievable, exquisite, heavenly pleasure, being known. Ah, so what? Ah, just When you can actually have that kind of continuity of awareness and you're not hung up on any of those things, then you can kind of mature at this stage called mature arising and passing away. Uh, just before number five. Mature arising and passing away. Okay? Let me tell you, this is as good as it gets. That's as good as it gets. Really, it is just exceptional. And everybody at this stage says, this has got to be it. First you think all these, these extraordinary spiritual goodies. And what distinguishes them from, from being spiritual goodies is when they occur, you will think, now I'm enlightened. And you'll also think, I bet my teacher has never experienced anything like this. <laughs> now, Upandita, my teacher, when I was practicing in Burma, he's, he would say, oh yeah, when you get to experience these things, you'll think, oh, I bet my teacher hasn't even experienced this. This is so good. How could anybody have experienced this and not have told me about it, you know? And he says, but when you get to there and you have that, you'll think, your teacher couldn't, doesn't know that. So I'm telling you, when you get there, you're going to think, I don't know what I'm talking about. I've never experienced these things. Right? You will. And you'll also think, this must be enlightenment. This must be what they're talking about. This has got to be. Nothing could be any better than this. And that's right. Nothing could be any better than this until you move on. Then it gets worse. (laughs) Okay? So I'm just just giving you a rough map. I'm going to spend more time on all these things over the weekend. But number six, or number five... uh, uh, number five is Vipassana knowledge of dissolution. This begins the Dukkhanyanas. Now, this is the second place where we want to roll up the mat and go home. Because remember the truth of Dukkha. There's the first noble truth of the Buddha's four noble truths is the truth of Dukkha. There's pain in life. There's unsatisfactoriness in life. There's insecurity in life. There's oppression in life. There's, uh, there's difficulties in life, right? That's the, that's the first noble truth, Dukkha. Well, at this point, after this mature arising and passing away, when all of these spiritual goodies are just something else being known, then you really have to learn about the truth, the truth of dukkha. And this is when the knowledge of dukkha really comes into your mind. Okay? And you think you've seen dukkha before, you know, with all this pain in the body and this frustration and difficulty in the mind. It gets worse. Even after the best of all the spiritual goodies, it gets so bad. Because it's not that the pain in the body is bad. It's that your confidence in experience as a... Your confidence that experience will be satisfactory is completely undermined. And you become disillusioned with everything. Disillusioned. Now, when I say you become disillusioned, you think, oh my God, 
you know, disillusioned. You know, when you generally when we say, "Oh, I'm disillusioned with that 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 person," I'm disillusioned with that person. I'm disillusioned with that course. I'm disillusioned with that, whatever. We think, well, you know, they, they you know, they 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 weren't as promised. You know, they're not as good as they made it out to be, right? But actually, if you become disillusioned, it means you're no longer under the illusion of something. So actually, disillusionment is wisdom. Unfortunately, the wisdom that we have to learn is the truth of dukkha. That things are really not ever going to be satisfying. Are you still with me? Nobody's getting up to leave yet. Okay? I can see some people looking at the door, but that's okay. Um, you know, the learning about the truth of dukkha really involves seeing the disillusionment. And it can be really, you can really get really pretty weary, pretty, uh, you, you start to not trust your teacher anymore. You certainly don't trust yourself. You feel like your practice is really, after all that good blissy stuff, you think, oh, my practice has gone backwards. But actually, it's moving forwards. You can't believe it. You can't believe it. You will, you will definitely think your practice is falling apart. And if you don't have a teacher, you definitely will go home. You'll stop practicing. Okay? Just take my word for it. You will. So you need a teacher that's, that has been through this stage and knows the way through it and knows what it looks like. Hmm? So they can sympathize with you. <laughs> they can't take it away from you. You still have to do it. But uh, number six, seven, and eight, you can see knowledge of fear becomes experience becomes fearful. Something that you just fear getting involved in. Why get involved in that? It's just going to be dukkha. And disenchantment or fear and danger. You see that, oh, if to getting, in, getting involved, seeking after, trying to find satisfaction anywhere is just dangerous. You're just going to suffer. And then the disenchantment is when you, you just become disenchanted with everything. You're dis- disillusioned. You're, just, you're no longer enchanted by the promise of anything. Don't take this mental state home with you. It makes it hard to you know, get along. But then... Number nine, luckily, uh, you, 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 you get enough of this uh, truth of dukkha and you want, to be, you want to deliver your mind. You want your mind to be free of dukkha. This is when you first begin to understand what uh, nibbana might actually be, what the end of suffering might actually look like. Because now you know what suffering is. You know what dukkha is. Now you can begin to really want to be free of, free of that. And... Um, so you, you make a, you make a um, res- resolve, number 10. Uh, you resolve to just keep noticing what arises, no matter what it is. No matter how bad it is, you just, make an, just, keep, just keep noticing. Something is being known, something is being known. Well, I wish I could say that you know, it was just all light and love and a lot of loving kindness and peace and just compassion for everybody, but that's not what's happening at this stage of the game. Okay? Bear with me. We'll get there. When you when you have kind of wandered through this stages of disenchantment, fear, danger, disenchantment, and desire for deliverance, again, uh, there's another third rolling up the mat stage where again, all of that kind of pain and itchiness and heat and unbearable restlessness in the mind comes back, and you'll think, <laughs> "I'm back. I've I've fallen from something to something worse," and uh, it's not true. Just, it, it, takes, it takes a while to get through this stage. 
but it's, it'll, it'll come. But if you just keep remembering, just something being known, something being known. Don't get upset. Don't get too excited. Don't get too fearful. Don't get too wigged out about it. It's just something being known, something being known. What we're doing is we're strengthening this, this continuity of recognizing the knowing. The awareness is getting really, really strong where it doesn't matter what comes into the mind, you'll, you, you will recognize it. You'll recognize the awareness of it. So awareness is becoming really, really strong. Okay? It's not, does, it doesn't waver with anything. And then the um, number 11 is when the mind finally stabilizes in non-reactivity, where the mind is really equanimous. It doesn't matter what arises in your experience, you have profound understanding what it is and you're not expecting it to be satisfying and it's not painful anymore either. And then the mind is really equanimous, meaning it's not caught in a reactivity. Even if something's pleasant, it doesn't, get, it doesn't get excited about it. If something's unpleasant, it doesn't get excited about that. No more fear, no more desire, no more uh, uh, seeking after anything other than just being aware, just being aware, just being aware. And the mind becomes very subtle, very light. The body becomes very light, the body becomes very subtle, almost insubstantial. That's, that would have to be the, the, the best definition. I was telling, I think at one of my last retreats, I was telling about this stage of practice. I was a monk in, in Burma, and um, when, the, when they had a lot of equanimity, uh, the body is so light and so insubstantial I couldn't feel my clothes, my robes, my monastic robes, on my body. And so before I would go from my room, I'd have to look, make sure I had my clothes on, my robes, because I couldn't feel anything. And when I would walk on the, the ground to go to meals, it was like I had to kind of really pay attention to make sure I was touching the ground. Of course I was touching the ground, but you don't feel it. It's like it's, the body is so light. And uh, it's like the body is only as substantial as mist. Mist. Nothing any more solid than that. That was the experience of equanimity. It's not pleasant, but it's certainly not unpleasant. It's just insubstantial. So when when the mind has that kind of equanimity, the, 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 the instruction is to just sustain the continuity of your practice longer and longer. So for hours, hours at a time, whether it's just sitting or walking, just hours and hours. And often at the equanimity stage of practice, you don't need to sleep much, hardly at all. For weeks, you don't have to sleep. The mind is just not reacting, it's not not wasting energy, it's not thinking about anything. It's very stable, balanced, uh, non-reactive to everything. And so... The knowledge of the three characteristics, the knowledge of impermanence, becomes super clear and continuous. The knowledge of dukkha becomes super clear and continuous. The knowledge of anatta, or the selfless nature, the conditional nature of experience, becomes very clear and continuous. So when the mind is not reacting to anything, it's not holding on to anything, it's not pushing away anything, the mind is in perfect balance, it's not seeking it's not resisting anything. Then it's possible that the mind might fall into the unconditioned. This is number 
number 15. It kind of zips through um, 12, 13, 14, 15, all in a split second. But that, uh, this is a moment of enlightenment, moment of enlightenment, where the mind falls into the unconditioned, tastes Nibbana, and uh, understands the, the reality. There's some perception of the reality of Nibbana, which is the end of suffering. It's not, a, it's not a state that you stay in. It's not like you hang out there for days or weeks or anything like that. But it has a radically transformative experience to the mind. Radically transforms the mind. The mind will never go back to the way it was before. And uh, this, uh, this path knowledge, uh, number 12, path knowledge is where one falls into the stream or becomes a stream enterer or uh, realizes Nibbana for the first time. And uh, it's a reality that can be known. Uh, it has no size, shape, color, no texture. There's nothing you can say about it except it has the characteristic of peacefulness. Peacefulness. Not just tranquility, but peacefulness. And that's the only characteristic that it has. Um, and then beyond that, there's a way to further refine the mind. Because when the first, the, the first stage of enlightenment, or the first glimpse of Nibbāna, only some of your suffering is uprooted. The suffering of doubt, uprooted. The belief in a sense of, the belief in there being a me in here to whom this is happening, that is uprooted. And the beliefs in rites and rituals as a, as a vehicle for awakening, uh, for freeing the heart from suffering, that is also uprooted. But most aversion, most desire, or the grossest forms of aversion and desire and confusion are also uprooted. There's still some aversion, there's still some desire, and there's still some confusion, of course. So we have to keep practicing. But the, the grossest forms is uprooted at first stage. So your life has changed forever. Forever. Not just for the rest of the retreat, not just for the rest of the day, not even just this lifetime. But this lifetime and all subsequent lifetimes, if you believe in that stuff. That's why it's so important to practice, to understand that there is a path. It leads to this realization of the unconditioned. And if, it, if, you, if you take this path, if you develop this path and you realize the unconditioned, then your life will be forever changed. I mean, this lifetime and all subsequent lifetimes. That's why in Burma, they... Emphasize, you know, practicing until you realize the first stage of enlightenment, until you see Nibbana for the first time. This book is the map. Huh? This, that, this journey that I've just kind of run over in 20 minutes, 15, uh, 30 minutes, is all detailed in this book. It's just a map. It's not the journey. You know, you can look at the map all you want. You can know the map inside out, but you still have to take the journey. But it gives you confidence. If you, if you can see the map, if you can understand the map, if you know that there are other people who have taken this journey and, and realized the unconditioned, then you can feel confidence in, in doing your own practice. We're not just looking for stress reduction here, folks. That's good, but there's so much more that's available. <laughs>